Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Vivian Weber. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It's uh, June 10th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us, Vivian. We appreciate this. Uh, Let's start you off by asking uh, why wine, or in your case, why grapes? Well, I mean, it's a long story. Um, My husband and I were living in Boston, and um, he was in the textbook, university-level textbook business. Uh, Prindle, Weber, and Schmidt, you're too young to know about that, but it was mainly a math textbook Mm -hmm. company. And I was in, and still am, in the travel business, and I was working in a travel agency in Boston. And um, since Arthur was in the marketing uh, area of the company, very small company, mm-hmm. he traveled all over the place. So in one of his um, stops in the country, he came across David Lett, who was working for uh, Scott's foreman, mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a conversation. Uh, They met probably in some professor's uh, office. And uh, Arthur had been a University of Oregon grad, so he knew the territory. Mm -hmm. And so um, they got talking, and David started uh, telling Arthur what a wonderful place it was to grow grapes. (laughs) And Arthur got enthused as being a wine aficionado in Oregon, like to get together with friends and match food and wine together. So um, um, we were going to go to Europe and uh, on a vacation, and he said, no, 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 let's go to Oregon. So <laughs> off we went to Oregon, and we, um, we stayed with a friend of his near Portland, and he decided he was going to find David Lett. Mm-hmm. And knowing that David Lett was in Dundee, and at the time there was a, um, a gas station at the bottom of the hill. Um, I think it was also before your time. But anyway, uh, it's where the radiator um, mm-hmm. uh, place is. And uh, we stopped there, and we asked if we could find uh, David Lett, and the man said, no, I don't want, I don't know, I'm glad I don't know, because if I knew, I'd have to lie and say I don't know, because he doesn't want anybody visiting him. (laughs) So, um, Arthur said, well, they always grow grapes on hills, so off we went to up the hill on 9th Street, which turns into Warden Hill Road, and um, we got to a place where there was this very sort of funny, um, torn out of a box uh, sign on a pole that said, uh, um, acreage for sale. 
And he said, I know this is David Lett's house. So in we went. <laughs> well, it happened to be Dave, uh, at uh, Jim Marsh. <laughs> and so in we went to Jim Marsh's house. And um, they said, yes, we have this land. And, and well, to make a long story short, we ended up buying 21 acres. And uh, I kept saying, but Arthur, we live in Boston. Why do we want 21 acres in the middle of nowhere in Oregon? And he said, no, no, it's just an investment. Well, two years later, we were out here, packed everything in our Volkswagen bug and, and uh, drove across country. So that was the start of um, that. And of course, none of us, including David Lett, Dickie Rath, and all those guys, none of us knew what we were doing. So um, you couldn't translate uh, California knowledge into Oregon grape growing. It just doesn't happen because totally different. Sure. So let's talk about that transition from uh, buying acreage in Oregon to actually moving out here and deciding that's what you're going to do. So how, what was the move like? What was the transition like? Well, I came kicking and screaming. <laughs> it was not something I wanted to do. But I mean, I, I had no clue, really. Mm -hmm. I had no clue. And he left his job. I left my job. And we had no money. And so we just... It, we were in our 30s, and so it was, it was, it was adventure. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Mm -hmm. And then um, as soon as we got here, we left in July of 74. We had bought the land in 72. And so uh, when we um, got here, Arthur had, we had met um, Dick, and so he decided, Dick decided that we, he would uh, let Arthur work. And so I didn't have anything to do. And pretty soon my ex-travel agency in Boston said, how would you like to start uh, taking tours? So that's what I started doing. So I started taking tours all over the world, um, and uh, Arthur then was um, wooed by Wadsworth uh, Publishing Company. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know who they are. Uh, they're in Belmont, California, and they bought Prenda Weber and Schmidt and also hired Arthur to start their international program. So he was flying back and forth to Belmont and I was flying back and forth to everywhere. <laughs> and, and we had this piece of land. And so in 1975, we planted um, three acres of Riesling, because that's what we thought grew here. And then the next year, 76, we planted three acres of Pinot Noir because I think we got a better handle on what really did grow here. <laughs> and uh, then um, I was in Hong Kong in 1976. Uh, Arthur called and said, hey, there's a house and 65 acres available adjacent to our property. 
and um, what do you think? Shall I buy it? I said, I don't know. You know, we don't have any money. How can we buy all this stuff? Well, anyway, he figured it out, and um, we bought uh, an old, dilapidated farmhouse and 65 acres. So then we had 86 acres. And so we started planting uh, Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. And um, so, um, let's see, I think it was uh, 1984, Arthur turned 50 and he decided he was going to retire. So then he was more at home and I was flying still all over the place mm -hmm. and um, devoted himself more to the marketing of the grapes since we weren't going to make wine. And uh, Oak Knoll was one that we started with. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dick, of course, mm -hmm. Erath. And some other people, smaller, smaller um, wineries. And eventually we sold to Rex Hill and um, mainly Rex Hill. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned coming here and you, you, not, you guys not knowing anything about growing grapes and people who are here not really knowing anything about growing grapes and how California didn't really translate to Oregon style winemaking. So how did you learn grape growing uh, the right way in Oregon? I think uh, mainly it was being um, uh, mentored by Dick mm -hmm. Erath, who was uh, experimenting with different rootstocks and and uh, varieties, clones, um, and I think it was just trial and er error. Um, but and we're dry farmers, which is. Um, something that there's the dry farmer guys and then there's the <laughs> irrigation guys mm -hmm. so we're still dry farming so our roots go down to China <laughs> <laughs> and why did you decide to do that I don't really know I think it was um, again Dick must have thought that that was the better mm -hmm. uh, way I think maybe in Germany uh, he has roots in Germany um, that he felt that irrigation wasn't the way to go. I mean, I don't think Europe irrigates. So I think we were going after the European model rather than the California model. And it worked for us. Did you have difficulty selling your grapes at any point? Were you always able to find buyers for your grapes? Well, there was a point where, you know, nobody thought that anything good was coming out of Oregon. Mm -hmm. And so um, there were, I think we sold some to King Estates who, mm -hmm. they were down in Eugene. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we also sold juice to um, somebody in East. But for the most part, um, I think Arthur did a pretty good job of uh, finding out who needed what and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
Was there, um, obviously you came in when the industry really didn't exist as an industry yet and you saw it grow up. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you felt like you were, you were doing the right thing, you, you had this down and you were in the right place? Well, I think David Litt's um, New York um, moment, mm -hmm. I think that, that gave us all the confidence that we were in fact doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, also, I think people started getting the idea that we were a cool climate um, uh, weather uh, growing uh, region and that uh, it worked in other places mm -hmm. and um, New Zealand being one. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. When you were deciding, you talked about planting Riesling first and then kind of getting into Pinot Noir uh, almost immediately after that. Were you deciding, did you decide what to plant based on what you thought would sell or did you decide based on what you thought would grow? More what would grow. Would grow. Um, and also, uh, yes, what would grow. And you were able to, and you were able to get them to grow pretty well from the start? Oh yeah, no problem, <laughs> no problem. It, actually, we, we were, um, we had more fruit than we grow now. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it became obvious that we were, we were overproducing um, and we had to cut back um, on, on our pruning. Mm -hmm. Another lesson to learn along the way. Kind right. Of, yes. right, 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 right. <laughs> um, at what point, so you, you mentioned David Lett's New York moment in the, the it was yeah. 1979 or 1980. I think, yeah. Uh, was that when it felt like there actually was an Oregon wine industry to speak of? Well, there was, uh, there weren't that many of us in the, um, in the industry. Um, and we, we formed a little group, and it was Myron Redford of Amity that, um, that said, you know, we need to market outside of Oregon. We need to start looking at other, uh, other places to sell our wine. It's not just Oregon. We're going to pretty soon, even then, uh, have a supply for everybody. Um, or oversupply. So tell me, about, tell me about that effort then to market outside of Oregon. Um, you know, I, I went to meetings because Arthur was on the road and um, uh, there was a lot of, of um, talk about sending, sending salespersons out to different um, states and I think the we 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 targeted uh, Washington and California mm -hmm. just because of the proximity and the fact that they also were growing grapes. And um, but other than that, I can't tell you more. I wasn't involved in any of that marketing effort. Okay. So we talk a lot about the early days, and we hear we hear a lot about the kind of collaborative aspect of the industry. So right. tell me about that. Tell me about kind of growing up together in the industry and kind of figuring things out along the way. Well, uh, uh, everybody helped everybody else, which um, was lovely. Um, 
I know you had Gary here, but uh, he was the first person we, um, we borrowed uh, a tractor <laughs> from. So um, it was really um, everybody helping everybody else. And um, if anybody had a problem, um, we all talked about it or tried to help each other um, resolve it, whatever it was. Uh, it was, um, it was a, a very small, close community mm -hmm. of people. And um, I think it was, it was a lovely time, actually. Do you have an idea why, why the industry was that close growing up? I mean, it, it didn't have to be. You guys were all sort of competing with each other at the same time also, or at least a lot of people technically were. So why the collaborative aspect? Why did the people come together so well? I think there was passion. Mm -hmm. I think it was passion. I think we all were working for the same end, and I don't think anybody, I don't think, really, I don't think there was a com competitive spirit involved. I, I still, even today, with all the corporate uh, uh, wineries coming in, mm -hmm. I, I still think that there's a very, not as much, but there's still a cooperative effort mm -hmm. that anybody needs help, as was uh, experience with the fellows from the Rogue Valley mm -hmm. this last um, this last harvest. Right. So tell me about the so I, you you the the vineyard grows into the 1980s and then you you kind of realize you're overproducing and you and you prune back a little bit. So tell me about kind of the the, the evolution of the vineyard after your expansion to 80 acres and, and sort of what came next after that? Well, um, I think the, uh, as, as um, the different winemakers uh, started um, making wine and trying to make really premium wines, mm -hmm. um, they instructed the, the wine growers that they needed to um, do two to two and a half um, um, tons per acre, mm -hmm. as opposed to what we were, might have been doing in the past. Mm -hmm. So it was mostly um, realizing that you could really make better wine by, by having a, sh a smaller uh, uh, production. Mm -hmm. And, how, and you developed a lot of relationships, obviously, with winemakers and, and wine owners around the right. area. Tell me about how those relationships sort of started and grew and, and matured over the years. Well, um, you know, the interesting part, at, at least now, is that a lot of the friendship that, um, that uh, evolved from, from having wineries and grape growers uh, working together rather than against each other. Um, uh, I think that some people, like the Ponzi's, um, the Sokoblosser, um, the second generation is coming in and they're, they're, they have the same uh, respect for the other uh, winemakers and wine growers. Mm -hmm. and. Um, 
we're not sure at this moment uh, nothing radical has happened but um, it is disappointing in one sense that you have um, absentee owners mm -hmm. this is something that is uh, affecting the the um, neighborhoods mm -hmm. the community of, of people in the neighborhoods um, where you had mom and pop and the kids now you have somebody who comes from California or Canada or the East Coast who um, have local people running it and aren't don't have families and growing kids growing up and working in the vineyards it's it's just a different mm -hmm. thing mm -hmm. and there's still those of us that uh, started and are still in it but I think a lot of people are getting tired you know it's been a long time <laughs> sure. and uh, I'm lucky because I have a vineyard manager and uh, he takes care of most everything mm -hmm. and uh, I don't have to go out there and prune and <laughs> and pick and do all of those things mm -hmm. or even figure out where to sell the grapes mm -hmm. he does all of that mm -hmm. So, um, and Jim Marsh has his grandson and his daughter. So, and it's just um, a different, different um, than somebody flying in from Washington D.C. Uh, periodically hmm. to see how things are going. And you mentioned Jim Marsh and Dickie Rath and some others. I know that you're still close with all of them and, yes. in fact, have a club together. So tell us about <laughs> kind of how that has evolved over the years and, and why you stay so close. Um, I think we are all really good friends. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, we have a, a club that gets together uh, once a month. Uh, we try once a month. And it rotates to different houses. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so Dickie, Rath, Gary, um, John Davidson from Walnut City, mm -hmm. um, uh, Jerry who had crumbled, Jerry um, Koshal who had crumbled rock, mm -hmm. which is now Furioso, mm -hmm. um, and Jim Marsh, Jim McDaniel, Carrie's mm -hmm. dad. So. Um, uh, it's it's lovely because they I mostly um, don't say much but they like to tease each other and uh, it's very fun and it's uh, it's great for them also to um, not sit at home and look at the flies or whatever <laughs> to have a reason to get together yeah yeah, yeah. So I'm curious when that group when that group talks about the state of the industry today, what what do they talk what are they talking about? Um, well, I guess it depends on which one you're <laughs> speaking to. Um, Dick is still making wine for himself. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, Jerry is uh, retired into McMinnville, and Gary's retired. He was an amateur winemaker. He never, 
he never did it professionally. He had a vineyard and then sold. And um, uh, John Davidson has vineyards and a winery and is still in the business. And Jim McDaniel got out of the business a long time ago, um, but uh, loved the, the industry and remains friendly with those, mm -hmm. particularly Argyle because he was involved with Argyle. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's a deep respect for those uh, who were, we were all together with a, with a joint uh, goal, I think. Mm -hmm. You know, the winemakers and the wine growers, grape growers. So we talked a lot about Sort of the, the you talked about the changes and kind of the absentee ownership out right. of state interests. So, is that the biggest change you've seen in the industry since you got into it, or is there something else that's uh, notice noticeably different aside from just pure size? Um, I think the quality of wine is is much better than it was in the beginning, and um, I think rivals almost any other region and people come uh, specifically to the Willamette Valley to to um, taste the Pinot Noir that I think is is really so good that uh, people fly in all the time I mean tourism is is great and um, that's another thing there's a lot of um, money coming in from tourism to the whole area. So it's hotels, uh, bed and breakfast, uh, restaurants. Um, it's certainly way different than when we first started. <laughs> I mean, there wasn't really a good restaurant except Nick's uh, in the area. Mm -hmm. so. Difficult to imagine now. Yes, I know, I know. <laughs> So as you, as you look back, uh, what are you what are you proudest of as, of your accomplishments in, in the Oregon wine industry? What is what is it you kind of think 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 fondly about? Um, I just marvel at the the people who came here early on, uh, my husband and all the other people, and um, just the the vision that they had for this area, which, um, no, you know, it was totally new thing. Mm -hmm. And um, they just were able to invest energy into making it a really um, viable industry. And um, they wanted to protect the wine industry. Mm -hmm. So, um, truth in labeling was very important, and I think um, the integrity of the wine industry in Oregon is very high. Mm -hmm. Do you have a notion for where that came from? Because that was a really early concept in the industry, that the yes. land use protection, the labeling protection. Right. Do you have an idea why, why that was such an important early concept for you? I, th I think that we all wanted to protect 
um, the agricultural um, land use um, in the area and um, I, I think we are all um, upset when somebody comes tries to come in and upset that mm -hmm. um, most recently was um, the uh, uh, San Michel trying to build a huge facility in in the Dundee Hills, mm -hmm. um, which I guess if they had researched it, would figure that they don't really have the infrastructure for that into a agricultural residential area. Mm -hmm. And um, but I think um, I think we all wanted a lovely place to live and work. Pretty good motivation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as you look to the future of the Oregon wine industry, what do you see on the horizon as you look, say, 10 or 20 years down the road? What do you, what do you foresee the wine industry looking like? Well, I, I tell you what I hope I don't see. <laughs> I hope I just don't see um, hill after hill with uh, grapes. And, and why I mean that is that I, I'm afraid of, of a monoculture that if somebody gets some kind of disease, it would wipe out everybody. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I, I like the fact that you might have a forest in between um, uh, grape growing areas mm -hmm. or uh, some diversity of some sort. Um, and I would hope that people would see that that, that would be um, not only maintain the beauty of the land, mm -hmm. but also um, uh, it's a good agricultural method. Mm -hmm. um, as far as what I see in 20 years, I really don't know because there's so many new wineries and uh, I don't know if our industry is going to overproduce itself right out of business. I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's a good answer. <laughs> yeah. I, I, have, I, I don't have the crystal ball. <laughs> so if you had, you, you kind of talk about what you hoped you, you won't see. Do you have all what you hope you will see? You talk about diversity of, of landscape. Do you have kind of a, the industry, hopefully the industry will look like this in 20 years in terms of like size, in terms of production? No? I don't have any idea about or hopes. I, I, I hope that the industry, the small um, grower and winery will be able to survive uh, in the midst of the large corporate uh, uh, buildings, mm -hmm. um, land use, you know, acre upon acre. So I'm hoping that we can coexist with each other because the large industries offer something and the small little wineries and grape growers offer something else. Um, so I think, um, I think we, sh we hopefully, 
all of us will survive and and help each other out. I think that's the big thing is to be hand-in-hand uh, -hand helping. Mm -hmm. I like that. So the last question I have for you, um, you, you guys came here really early on in the industry so uh, as you look back is it what is it like to, to know that you played kind of an instrumental role in the very like formation of this industry? It's awesome <laughs> it's it's um it's funny because you know as you come and try to do something and um have no idea what what the end result's going to be um and i think it's it's um it, i feel very blessed that that um our vineyard is respected by a lot of people. Um, I, I have people coming up and saying, we love the Weber wine. Mm -hmm. And as you know, there are several um, winemakers that um, label it mm -hmm. uh, Weber uh, Vineyard Designate, mm -hmm. which means that that's 100% uh, our grapes. And um, that is, um, that is very satisfactory and um, it's uh, it's nothing I dreamed of and the only thing I'm sorry about is that my husband isn't around to to experience it because it was his dream mm -hmm. well thank you that's all the questions that I have for okay. you is there anything else I should have asked you anything else you'd like to mention I don't here think so. okay. I don't think so well, thank you so much for your time and for your answers, and we'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over